Hello everyone, my name is Paloma Ortiz Lopez, the founder of Avantgarde International and a career specialist. Welcome to the Diary of a Female Leader, the podcast in which we will share the journey of a variety of female leaders that are thriving in what people know as male-dominating environments. Thank you for listening. everybody and welcome to Diary of a Female Leader. Today we have uh, Pamela Fierster-Walsh. Pamela, hello, how are you? Good morning for you. Hi Paloma, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Where are you today? I am in the capital of the United States, Washington, D.C. Oh, exciting. This is a first for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you should come visit us. We'd love to have you. I'll take your word on that. So Pamela, welcome to Diary of a Female Leader. I'm, I'm really excited about our conversation. You, you, apart from having a great career, but um, you know, you have a, a very unique profile in in my eyes. So I'm really, really looking forward to to our chat today. Thank you. Me too. Pamela, as is traditional in a Diary for Female Reader, um, I'm going to give our listeners a brief introduction about um, your career, if you allow me first. Okay, I'll try not to cringe too much. <laughs> <laughs> Pamela Fierster-Walsh is a recognized leader on conflict and critical minerals, mineral supply chain dependencies, and global risk, reflecting her passion for clean energy revolution. Transforming the U.S. diplomatic approach to critical minerals, she has spearheaded the creation of a State Department policy through close partnership with the U.S. interagency. Her work resulted in key diplomatic partnerships with the governments of Australia, Canada, and the European Union. She defines herself as a fierce women's empowerment advocate and mentor through multiple organizations, including Women's Foreign Policy Group, and has been awarded as top 100 U.S. corporate responsibility influencer. How is that, Pamela? Impressive. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm over here cringing, but I appreciate it. <laughs> Excellent. So, Pamela, we always uh, like to provide our listeners with with a little bit of a, the journey, and the journey normally starts with with childhood. So, how was your your childhood? Uh, where did you grow up, for instance? I grew up in a very small town in northwest Indiana, right about five miles from Lake Michigan, fifty miles from Chicago, and just had a a childhood in the Midwest. My father was mm-hmm. a steel worker, still is many years later, and mm-hmm. that was life. Excellent. That must have been exciting. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure exciting is the right word, but I can say that from a very young age and goodness knows where I got it, I knew that my my life was going to have an international angle to it. I, even before I, I knew you needed a passport to do anything, I was planning to be up and out. And that's what I find exciting because I think it was so different from from mine, <laughs> where my destiny was <laughs> to stay there forever. <laughs> that's funny. I'm sure that you you had something in mind. So we all kind of know what, or we think we know what we want to become when we are kids. So what was your first thoughts there? Well, <laughs> I think if if we're talking like really, really early, um, I was going to be a fashion designer, which if okay. you know me, it makes 
makes no sense at all. Because not only <laughs> can I not design clothes, I'm not terribly fashionable. So <laughs> who knows where I got that idea. But I, I pretty soon settled on going to law school and becoming a lawyer. And in my mind, that was that was just this very lucrative and exotic and important role that I was going to have. I didn't know a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyers. Okay. Uh, I didn't know anyone who'd gone to law school. Again, like I said, I, I didn't even know what a passport was, but from a very young age, I was just assured, self-assured that that's the path I was going to take. It certainly ended up winding and, and happy to talk about that. But from, from a pretty early age, law school was in my sights. Mm-hmm. And, and did you have a type of law in mind then or, or were you kind of not, not ready enough to decide? I don't think I knew, but I was going to be a quote international lawyer. <laughs> so <laughs> without without knowing it at that time, you know, in like the fourth or fifth grade, what the difference would be between, say, a lawyer who practiced public sector international work, right? Like were you working for the UN or were you working for a nonprofit or the government? Or were you doing contract work in the private sector? Those mm -hmm. distinctions were completely unseen to me. I just was going to travel to exotic inter international locations and mm -hmm. and be very important while I did it. <laughs> that was what I think. That's what I think my exotic self image was going to be from a very early age. Again, no one knows where I came from or how I got these ideas, but that's what they were. Yeah. So how old were you when this happened? And if you can tell us a little bit about, you know, the education system where you grew up and, you know, how old you have to be when you make those decisions and what's kind of the path to university. I think that most of people know the US system by now, but just in case there are somebody that doesn't know. It's a bigger question probably than you realize because Yes, there's the U.S. system, which can offer a lot of flexibility, perhaps compared to, for example, some of the European systems where you have to select kind of a path much earlier on and, and stick mm -hmm. with it. I picked international law, quote, quote, like I said, from a, from a very young age without really mm -hmm. knowing exactly kind of what that meant or what it would entail. But I went to my undergraduate university at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, great school, fantastic international programs. And I majored in economics and in French. So I, I double majored. But I wasn't really sure when I went to college precisely that those were going to be my majors. When I was matriculating through junior high and then high school or VCA day for the French listeners, I would... You know, I practiced my French. I always loved issues of economics, of government, of social engagement. You know, those topics mm -hmm. were just really fun for me to kind of to think about and debate and have strong opinions about. And so when I went to college, continuing to study them through the lens of whether it's formal training in economics or actual cultural learning, you know, by learning a language. But then I also moved to France for one year when I was in college. I, I just kind of started honing this set of skills around becoming a person with international sensibilities. And without coming out with a specific set of skills that make you employable to do X, Y, or Z, it simply honed in me a really big menu of experiences and qualities that I could build from for whatever mm -hmm. kind of happened next. 
when I graduated from my undergraduate work, I had applied to law school and I had been accepted, but I felt as though I needed just some time off, which I don't know if that's typical or not these days. Oftentimes when you go to graduate school in the United States, it's common to have some space between your undergraduate work and your graduate work, partly because depending on the subject that you're going to study, you've gone out into the into the world, you've worked in an area that, you know, builds up your interest in studying that area more, and then you go on to get a graduate degree in it. But for law school, it's not necessarily that way. You know, you can come to law school having been a, a scientist or having been a, you know, a librarian. It doesn't matter. You could be any number of things and decide mm-hmm. I want to go to law school. And then with that law degree, do any number of things. So I took a year off and, you know, I have to say my parents were not enthusiastic about that year off. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. My father was convinced that I would never go back. He um, was perpetually worried about my ability to take care of myself. I don't know why, but he was, and probably just being a little worried. My mom, I think, understood a little bit more that I I usually accomplished what I set out to accomplish. And if I said I was going to go to law school, I was going to do it. And if I needed the year, that made sense. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so took the year off and then decided, okay, I'm either going to, you know, remember this was the late 90s. I was either going to move to Seattle and be a waitress in a cocktail bar and like get into the grunge scene or <laughs> I needed to go back to law school. And so, I think uh, law school. <laughs> <laughs> right. And again, no part of me would have would have done well in the grunge scene. Let's be clear about that. But it sounded like a great idea. So mm. anyway, I elected not to move to Seattle and went back to law school and kind of dove right into that. Though I would say, and this is perhaps yet another windy path that is part of what ends up being my guidance on taking journeys in your in your personal and professional life, is that I realized pretty on pretty early on I didn't want to practice law. Like it's it was a fascinating experience. I really obviously learned so much, but there was so much about the practice of law that just did not give me a lot of excitement. Mm-hmm. So my first summer in law school, I ended up doing an internship at this agency called the U.S. Office of the Trade Representative, USTR. And it's a small government agency that is basically in charge of handling trade treaties on behalf of the United States. And at the time, I was hired as an intern to help their efforts related to tariffs on steel in the United States. So my dad was a steel worker. Somehow they read my cover letter that they actually read my cover letter and <laughs> brought me in. And I loved it because it felt like I was just running around the pages of The Economist all day long, which is something that I say a lot to describe what ended up being my career for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Avid reader of the magazine, The Economist, have always loved it. And it just felt really impact, like passionate about what I was mm-hmm. doing all the time. Just everything just was cool and exciting and, and impactful. And then I parlayed that internship into um, an internship for the largest steel company in the world in Paris. And I was going to be spending a semester in France anyway, my last year of law school. So I convinced this steel company to let me come on board for the summer 
And then, cause I was going to be there anyway. So it was just a matter of me coming over a few months early. And for some reason they took me up on it and it was great. Loved the company, but by the end of the summer, I had run out of money. <laughs> I, <thought laughs> I should probably go home and finish law school in the United States and figure out what I'm going to do when I graduate because I had not taken the traditional route of spending a summer working for a firm or working for a public defender's office or something that I would then turn into a job offer upon graduation. Mm-hmm. I had I had followed what to me was the much more interesting path. And in that process really confirmed for myself that corporate law, despite what I had thought I would be doing, did not hold for me the excitement or the challenge that I was looking for, which isn't to say it's not challenging. It just simply wasn't what I wanted to do. So you were useful. Yeah. And and I wanted to have an international life, but actually be in that culture to some degree. Whereas a corporate lawyer, very stereotypically, and I think pretty typically, may travel to a foreign capital, but they're spending a lot of a lot of hours in a conference room and they're not seeing or living or, or doing a whole lot. At least that was my my experience. So came back and I ended up getting hired on a prestigious fellowship program that allowed the State Department to hire me. And at the time I told myself, if the State Department hired me on this fellowship, that would be the pursuit that outweighed to me the practice of law. Mm-hmm. I had been in an interview with some firm not far from the town I grew up in. And on my resume, it had said that I had experience working on World Trade Organization trade issues. And the lawyer interviewing me actually said out loud, you know, what's the point of the World Trade Organization? And I thought, well, <laughs> this is definitely not the firm for me. And it was pretty likely that that would be the mentality I was going to find in most of the the places that I would look if I if I were to have stayed in the Midwest. So the State Department brought me on board and I, I never looked back. I ended up having a career as a foreign affairs officer for more than 17 years and just genuinely loved the work that I did. It was always challenging. It was it was oftentimes very frustrating, but I ended up carving out a path to me that was far more rewarding and enriching than I could have imagined. It occurred to me often in that time at state, whether I was working on US policy in Sudan or traveling to Darfur or, you know, visiting Latin America or, you know, any of the the travel that I was able to do in various positions that I held. I often thought, you know, this is the work I would have picked if I had known this work existed as a kid growing up in the middle of America, you know, which I assure you, I did not realize that it existed. And it was, it was incredible. Now, the last role that I had was as the U.S. representative to the Kimberly process and dual headed as the senior advisor for conflict minerals. So the Kimberly process manages the trade in in rough diamonds and stems from a variety of of, uh, conflicts in the late 90s, early 2000s that were financed by rough diamonds. And then conflict minerals refers very specifically under U.S. legislation to tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold that are mined in the eastern DRC 
and are used to fund instability for armed group activity there. So that requires certain uh, reporting requirements from private sector companies that rely on those four materials. And that work, it just, it plunged me into a place of policy that I found terribly fascinating, but also personally rewarding because it tapped into a lot of the skill sets that I'd been honing anyhow, right? External communication and a love of environmental and social and governance issues and seeing how not only how they played out on the ground for real people, but also marrying that with solutions that the private sector needed in order to continue you know, economic commerce. And I'd been in that role for a few years when suddenly the phrase critical minerals landed pretty heavily inside uh, the U.S. government. And I was the only one with minerals in my title at the time. And I thought, well, we need to be doing something on this. Like the state, the U.S. Department of State needs to have an approach around critical minerals that taps into what we understand to be national security and diplomatic equities. This has to happen. And it wasn't necessarily like everything I've done, a very straightforward path. But ultimately, I was incredibly proud of the work that that I and a small team ended up being able to kind of harness and then develop and move forward into a life of its own that that ultimately, I, I believe, fed into the Inflation Reduction Act. But it was a reorienting of the scope of what U.S. interests were in a particular supply chain. Prior to the concerns around critical minerals and access to these valuable things that are essential for the clean energy revolution, you really had an overwhelming focus on, when you said extractives, people automatically thought of oil or natural gas. There was not an immediate understanding that minerals were as important as those other commodities for a variety of reasons. So doing the work that that I did at such a important time forged relationships inside the US government between the scientists who really knew the periodic table very well for example <laughs> with those of us in the the diplomatic apparatus that could enable deeper relations with allies and partners like Canada like Australia that had their own vested interests in critical minerals and deeper partnership with the United States and it just it was a it was a fascinating time, and so I I spent um, those years just loving loving the work that I did. It was it was great, but then I was I, I took a meeting one day with a, a very nice gentleman who wanted to hear all about the work we'd done on mineral supply chains because he was looking for solutions to very different but similar supply chain issues in the apparel space. And before I knew it, the, that man facilitated a, a job for me <laughs> in the apparel sector <laughs> of all places, which for the record is definitely as close as I'll ever get to being a fashion designer. And um, <laughs> I was and going to on say <laughs> the, on their supply chain issues, as they've got some commodities with serious supply chain concerns, particularly in the environmental and social spaces 
Um, you're thinking cotton, lots of regulation around them, U.S. regulation related to human rights, European legislation related to environmental sustainability and circularity. And so I was kind of brought in to help them figure out a strategy and a way forward in the face of, of some hurdles that they were, they were facing. So I left the, the State Department and, you know, it was time. I felt, it felt like the, it felt like the next phase for my career. And yeah, it was an awesome opportunity. Unfortunately, it was not as long lived maybe as I'd hoped. Um, there was some significant restructuring in the company. It was a fantastic experience, but. That there go that that happens sometimes in the private sector, mm-hmm. and Definitely. and so and so here I am feeling my pull back to back to minerals. So I don't. Does that answer your question? It's probably a it, long-winded answer. <laughs> it does answer a lot of the questions that I had, but I like to rewind a little bit um, mm. because some of the people uh, critical minerals to, for you and, and I that you know that, that we talk about them constantly are quite common thing. But uh, a lot of people are it's surprising that don't really know uh, our day-to-day contact and and what they actually what are these critical minerals and and what's the impact in our lives. So for those that perhaps don't don't know so much about minerals and and you know how we use them day to day. Could you define a little bit what what critical minerals are and do, do a bit of a feedback for us? Yes, absolutely. So it's important to note that depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, a critical mineral may be different, but they mm-hmm. generally speaking pretty much overlap. Meaning, the United States has a set of its critical minerals and materials. And the European Union has a set of its own critical minerals and materials. They're generally things that are necessary for economic and security needs. And as a result, they are prioritized. But those places, and I've just picked two, may not have ready supplies of them. And so there's a shortage in their domestic capabilities of accessing them. But a great way to think about critical minerals is really anything that you need for an electric vehicle battery, a, uh, a smartphone, things that make magnets. So you're talking, you know, lithium, you're talking rare earth elements, you're talking nickel, you're talking, you know, copper in some cases. And so the critical minerals is really a, a, a catch-all phrase for a constellation of very essential minerals and and ultimately uh, alloys that are without which we're simply never going to reach our clean energy goals because we will still be using combustion for transportation or or other means. Mm-hmm. So in other words, critical minerals are are paramount to you know what we all talk about energy transition so for in order for that to happen we need critical minerals and and we don't have enough of them right now some of them come from areas that like you said in the drc they they kind of used to in exchange for for things that um, are not in human rights and and you know vulnerable for for children so it's important to have people like like you and your role as senior advisor on conflict and, and critical minerals, or important things that came out of that is you mentioned as well as the Inflation Reduction Act. I think that's that's kind of a really big highlight of, of recent times on, on critical mineral space. Beautifully said. I mean, the thing to remember is that critical minerals are essentially 29 or 30 different supply chains. 
that's really part of the complexity around the issue. So if there are, you know, 28, 29, 30 different minerals comprising these lists, in all likelihood, you've got 30 different supply chains for 30 different equally important concerns for commodities, which means however they come out of the earth and wherever they go and wherever they're processed and whatever they are used to transform into something usable are often very distinct, which makes it very complicated, right, for getting the economics right and the supply chain policies right. Those 30 or so minerals are incredibly important today, and they're only going to grow in importance because people are not going to start to start caring less about how their products come to market. And people don't want to buy a vehicle that is brought to market with a variety of environmental or social ills attached to it. Exactly. And, and things like, uh, you know, responsible buying are more present than ever in our day-to-day life. So I guess that you mentioned about your, your latest role as VP, Vice President of Traceability for the apparel company, uh, such an, uh, an important company. So this role it has got supreme importance, I guess, onto the responsible buying concept that, that we're discussing. Absolutely. There is not a supply chain on this earth where issues about how a product is made and how it is sourced is immune from concern. There just just simply isn't one. Now, there are products that are considered more valuable or, or things that maybe have a little bit more notoriety or popularity around them. It doesn't matter if it's a t-shirt or a watch battery. It isn't a supply chain for which there are issues and concerns that companies need to take seriously. And, and you mentioned that, obviously, we've gone through a lot of your career already. So I kind of want to reflect a, a little bit on, you know, you mentioned when you were you were a child, you wanted to be an international important person. You, you wanted to be many things, but just kind of summarizing <laughs> that. So it looks like you kind of got the, the international and the importance, certainly, and on the, you know, impact of, of some of the work you you've done has in, in the, the minerals space. So what do you know about, especially the, the recent roles that you had, uh, what's keeping you going in the industry? I love working on complicated problem sets with really smart people for something a whole lot more important than any one of us. And I can't think of anything more rewarding for for me, there are plenty of rewarding things out there, but for me, then playing a part in getting it right with this energy transition. As you know, Paloma, the mining space is not something that is necessarily well understood. It's not as mainstream in the understanding of a lot of people. And so when I think about what excites me for this work, I think what an opportunity to make the work that goes into these really valuable supply chains for the betterment of the planet, better understood, better executed in line with the values that are consistent with the reason we're doing it in the first place. So there's so much about it that I find inspiring. I'm not even sure where to, where to start, but that's how I probably put it. (laughs) And uh, on the reflection front, is there anything, any tips that you would have, to tell your younger self? 
Oh, gosh, so many things. I think for a younger self, I would probably have said it's really important not to be so afraid. I think I spent a lot of time second guessing my own judgment because I thought there was someone out there who perhaps knew better than I did or someone I should listen to when truth is I I could have really just answered the questions myself a lot of times. I would I would say to lean in and and be a little less afraid of what's going to come next and just have some have some faith in yourself. Very good. That's a very good, uh, very good advice. Pamela, we used to have um, a standard question for all our guests in, in season two, which uh, you'll be third episode. We've added a second question and, and you have a choice, you know, I'm, I'm happy to tell you that you can choose this time. <laughs> okay. So the first question, the traditional question, should I say, was um, what else uh, can we do to help reaching men, female equity at, at work? That was the, the traditional question, assuming that we have done a lot. And I invite everybody to, to listen to episode one of the second season where we kind of reflect on, you know, how was uh, in the 80s, uh, you know, uh, we had a doctor, Pamela, here that practiced in the 80s. And, and you know, today mm-hmm. a doctor, a female doctor is such a common thing. So obviously we've done a lot of things to, to get to where we are today. So, but I'm sure we can do something else. So that's the first question. The second question is about skills. You know, I work in HR, so I'm, I'm really, skills are, excite me a lot. So what are the skills that, in your opinion, Pamela, you would encourage other women to, to acquire in order to, to grow in their career? I'm going to take the second question. Because the first okay. one, the first one could, <laughs> could take us down a very long conversation. But the second question... <laughs> The second question, so I once worked in an office where we had an intern who, when asked what his you know, biggest learning was for the internship, was how to use the phone because his generation didn't talk on the phone. They just texted. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't want to sound like a, an octogenarian here, but basic skills around confidence and communication in conf- and com- confidence in communication are essential for anything that you do in this life. And so one thing that I notice a lot in my nieces and nephews who, you know, range in age from five to 18 is a certain ambivalence or concern around communicating directly. And we could talk all all day about whether that's technology or smartphones or video games or whatever it is, I don't know. But I do think that no matter where you go with your career, if you can show up in person for a conversation and leave the people that you've met with feeling confident about you and your ability to do your job, whatever that is, and to express yourself, I think you have covered so much territory. So I I would really encourage folks coming through now to hone that. Don't be shy about reaching out to someone and having a conversation in a space that is maybe uncomfortable because you don't think you can or, or something silly. I would really encourage you to work on the confidence you bring to communication. Mm-hmm. And and that's true. I agree with you there, Pamela. I, I you know something as common as a train ride, you know, you know, a commute train ride. It was quite common just to talk to the person that you had next to you 
recent days, everybody is is on their phones. I include myself there, <laughs> you know, on, on their <laughs> phones. Probably they talking to maybe somebody is you know in on the train as well, but uh, they do it through the phone instead of just socializing with the person that you have next next to you. So maybe that could be a little tip, you know, start talking to the person next to you on the tube or the train. That's a really good idea, actually. Yes. It starts small. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're finishing, uh, Pamela, and we reaching the, the last question of the, of the conversation. It's gone really quick for me. I hope that um, it's gone as quick for you. Oh, it has been so fast. And I, yeah, super <laughs> fast and fun. Thank you for having me. I think it's a great podcast that you're leading here. So the final question, Pamela, is... Um, what can you say? Of course, you've given us a uh, lot of gems uh, today, but uh, I always like to to finish this uh, this conversation with uh, a reflection on on those females specifically, as the podcast uh, is directed to to those females that perhaps they they don't have the confidence to step into roles or into industries that have been what we call male-dominated industry industries or, or, or roles that have been traditionally held by men. So what would you tell to those that, who are hesitant to step into these roles or are double, you know, having second thoughts? Yeah, it's such an important question because I, I really understand how personal it can be for people when they're figuring out where to go and what environments they want to put themselves in. I think what's What's really important when you're picking your path and when you're, you know, you're not even sure what path you're on necessarily. You're just taking steps in the direction of things that you find interesting. I don't know that anyone embarks on a path because they say, you know what, there aren't enough women in this space. So I'm just going to go do this, this thing because, because I'm a woman and they need more women in the space. Mm-hmm. You're doing something because you're, because you enjoy it and because you're interested in it. And I think sometimes the the problems can occur so early in the process where we like something, a person likes to do something or is interested in a subject matter, and someone else tells them that's not for them for reasons that have nothing to do with that person's interest. So I think if you're looking at the, the example of women and, and the, the mining space, well, before you even get into that the very heady topic of women and mining... You just get to somewhere there's a a girl who likes geology, right? Or Mm -hmm. somewhere there's a girl who likes engineering and she should be encouraged and feel confident enough to pursue those interests regardless of who she's around when she does it. And I think that gets back to listening to yourself and understanding what are the things you want to do? How do you want to spend your time? What do you want to learn more about? And focus more on those issues than about who else is in the class with you when you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and and or who else on the is in the boardroom sometimes because you you hear sometimes you know ladies, fellow ladies that you know are very strong individuals, very educated and and with many years of experience and very good at what they do. But when it comes to stepping into a boardroom, they kind of overthink who who is in there, especially if it's majority of of males. But I think that this is a very good point what you're saying. You you enjoy what you do. You have been doing it probably for for many years to enjoy the process and enjoy doing it as as you would do normally. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think the boardroom example is is really spot on, Paloma. I think you've you've got it there. I mean, the truth is no one is going to come to you and say, 
that you should be where you want to be because you're qualified to be there. I mean, they might say that and hopefully they think that, but until you are in a place where you can stand up for yourself to say, I deserve this, I deserve to be here, I have earned this work, it's going to be hard for other people to see you that way, right? So Mm -hmm. you have to believe it. You have to believe it first. And I'll I'll also say this, if you find yourself surrounded by people who don't think that about you, you are in the wrong space. <laughs> you should go somewhere else because they they aren't they aren't worth you. Mm-hmm. And Pamela, on that note, I think it's a very good uh, moment to to thank you a lot for for your time and for being a guest here at Diary of a Female Leader. Paloma, thank you so much. I've had so much fun talking with you. And I hope we'll t- I hope we'll stay in touch. We will do. We will do. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Diary of a Female Leader. If you enjoyed our episode and want to contribute to sharing these incredible stories of females leading in business, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our next interview. You can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn by searching Diary of a Female Leader. Until next time.